Let's bow in prayer before we look into God's word together. And Shelley, just prayed, Lord, we pray now that you would open up our hearts. We are so grateful for what we just sang about, for your love, for your faithfulness, for your righteousness, for your justice. You are indeed worthy of our worship. You are worthy of all of our adoration. And uh, Lord, we have been doing that this morning. We have been worshiping you. We have been praising you. And we want to continue to do that now as we think more about all that you have done in history and all that you are doing now in our lives and in our church, in your world. So as we now gaze into your very words, Lord, we come before you with humility. We come humbly. And we ask that you would grant us the ability now, in the power of your Spirit, to see, to hear, to understand, and that you would use what we learn and use what we see to to change us. We know that your word does that work in each of us. It transforms us, and we pray that that would happen this morning. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 111, Psalm 111, and I want to read that psalm for us and then just work our way through that, thinking particularly about the works of the Lord this morning. Psalm 111 reads this way, praise the Lord, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright and in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The splendor and majesty of the Lord's labors. Those verses talked about the splendor and majesty of the Lord's works, but since it's Labor Day weekend, I changed that to the Lord's labors. Labor Day is not really thought of as a spiritual holiday, so it's not one of those ones that we uh, often preach on. But I thought it'd be good for us to think about not our labors, but the labors of the Lord this morning. That's what I want us to think about today and next week, not because it's Labor Day, but because we're going into our fall ministry kickoff, which is also an opportunity to highlight the work of the church. And like I said, I'm not sure, but I think Labor Day was originally meant to highlight probably the the contribution of workers to our society, something like that. Some of you historians might correct me on that. 
But it's definitely, like I said, not connected to any kind of religious holiday like Christmas is or Easter is or even Thanksgiving would be. But the Bible does talk about work, most wonderfully about the work of God. And so I want to, like I said, have us think about the works of the Lord and then next week how God's work, especially his work of salvation, makes possible and informs our work in the church. The Bible actually also talks about how how our Christian lives intersect with the work that is our jobs. And, uh, and we just had an entire Sunday school class last spring, actually, talking about that. But for today, we want to focus on the works of God. Art galleries are places that display people's works of art. And this morning, we want to step into God's gallery. We want to be able to see God's works on display. In John 10, there's a wonderful story there about Jesus seeing a blind man on the road. And he tells the disciples as he's walking by that he's about to heal this man. And he gives the reason why. He says, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Well, we want to go into that gallery and take a peek at God's works this morning. And we'll do that by walking through the gallery that is Psalm 111. Right at the beginning, you notice that it tells us to praise God. You see there that it actually starts and ends that way. Praise the Lord. And then on the back end, in verse 10, he ends by saying, His praise endures forever. We sometimes use the, the, the word hallelujah when we sing our hymns. That's actually the Hebrew word here that, that's translated as praise the Lord, both at the beginning and the end. And so we're aiming here why we ought to praise God. And the psalmist is going to tell us why. How does it start? I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. So right off the top, we see how and where we ought to go about praising God. We ought to do it with all of our hearts. When we truly see God's works, God's works of art on display, our reaction should always be, first of all, wow, and then, God is amazing, and then, thank you, Lord. Wholehearted praise. We should praise the Lord with our whole heart. And then secondly, it tells us the context in which we best praise God, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. And so this guy talks about how he is praising God in the congregation. It's corporate worship. God has given us each other, the fellowship of believers, with whom we can thank God together. Yes, you can do this on your own during the week, and you need to do this on your own during the week. You need to be praising God but praising God, there's just something about praising God together as a congregation, singing together, worshiping together, hearing from God's word together, sitting under God's word together, encouraging one another in love and good deeds. All of that is part of our worship. We don't come here to watch people perform. We gather to participate with the company of the upright in thanking the Lord with our whole hearts. And so what are we supposed to praise God for? What is it exactly that makes him 
praiseworthy, worthy of praise and worthy of thanks? The answer to that question here is his works. You see that right through the psalm. Verse 2, great are the works of the Lord. Verse 3, and, and, and in verse 4, and in verse 6, and in verse 7. And so putting it all together, Psalm 111 is a call for us to praise God for his works. There might be other words there that, uh, that you might have translated differently in your version, but all of them basically mean the same thing. It's talking about his works. What are those? What has God worked? What are God's labors? What has he worked on that should cause us to praise him? What kinds of labors, efforts, activities, works has he done? What, does, what has God actually exerted himself to do? Well, the first thing you might think about when you think about God's works is his creation, his creative works. God works to create. And we don't have to work too hard to look around and to see all the things that God has created and then to praise him because of his creation. Maybe you've traveled this summer and you, you've been able to see God's handiwork in creation. Maybe you've seen it in the mountains or, or just in the trees or in open fields or at lakes or on hills or in creeks or through wildlife. These all shout of God's works of creation. No matter what science these days says, these are all God's works of creation. There is no good explanation for all those things other than the fact that God has created them. And in Genesis 2.2 it says, on the seventh day God finished his work, uses the same word there, his work which he had done. And then God rested from all the work which he had done in creation. So creation is God's handy work. God worked in the past to create the world that we live in, and we can walk through the gallery that is, it, that is the world and say, great are the works of the Lord. But if you just end at Genesis 2, you may think that God is done working then. It says he worked and then he rested from his work. But that was Genesis 2, and that was just the seventh day. It doesn't tell us about the eighth day, but God was right back to work again. And that was necessary because we all know what happened in Genesis 3. The man and the woman he created sinned, and by that one act they subjected the entire creation to the effects of that sin. And so we find that God is still at work. Where God had completed his initial work of creation, he's now at work in recreation. In Genesis 6, God is described there as striving. It's another word for working or laboring, as striving with man. God's physical work of creation now takes on a spiritual dimension. Whereas in Genesis 1 and 2, he was working in creation. Now he is working in salvation. And in some senses, places like Ephesians 1 that we read say that he has been doing that even before creation. That's part of his purpose in all Eternity is to work his salvation, is to provide salvation. And so we have verses like Ephesians 1, verse 11, which said God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is working to save and transform his people. And then when we get to the culmination or, or the last part of God's purpose of saving his people, 
you can, we've read Genesis 2. If you look in Revelation 15, verse 3, at the very end of the Bible, it says that in heaven, the redeemed will still be singing, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. So it's an interesting thing. If you have time, just, if you have a concordance or something, just type in the word work and see how often it appears in the Bible. It goes right from creation to Genesis 2, right to Revelation Verse 15, where we will still be praising God for his works, and that's what we will be doing eternally. It goes on and on. His people will be praising God in heaven for his work. His work that makes it possible for us to be there with him in heaven. And so we are going to be praising God now and right through eternity for his labors. It will be an eternal labor day in heaven as we are praising God for his work. I think that's, that it's mainly these saving works of God that the writer has in mind here in Psalm 111, although they're mixed in with his creative works as well. He's thinking about how God delivers and saves and rescues his, his people. He's probably thinking back again to God, how, super, how God supernaturally delivered Israel from Egypt, how he delivered them from sla- slavery through the Red Sea, uh, through the wilderness, and into the Promised Land. And by the way, starting September 23rd, we're going to be working through the book of Exodus where it talks about all those things, all those saving acts of God which foreshadow the saving act of God through his son, Jesus Christ. So this rescue in Egypt actually foreshadows the great spiritual realities of salvation where he rescues his people through Christ from sin. Not a physical slavery, but a spiritual slavery. So let's go back to Psalm 111 and find out about the work that God has done and the work that God is doing, which will then inform our praise and worship. We're going to see a description of God's works. We're going to see how we, where we see God's works displayed and then how to truly delight in God's works. First, how are God's works described here? What kind of adjectives does he use to describe God's works? We see God's works described there in verse 2 with really an all-encompassing word, the word great. Great are the works of the Lord. Verse 3, full of splendor and majesty is his work. And so the psalmist here is is sort of allowing his mind to, to reflect on and to meditate on all the ways that God has acted and worked and intervened and and all he can think of in describing them is, is with words like great, with words like splendor, words like majesty. Those words splendor and majesty, those ones in verse 3 there, could also be translated as height and grandeur. He, he, he's really just sort of stretching his mind up to try to come up with the vocabulary and the adjectives that would fit to describe God's works. No one could do things like this but God alone. No one could deliver people like this, but God alone. No one could rescue people like this, but God alone. Psalm 86, verse 8 says, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord. Whatever gods there are in this world, there is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. God's works, God's labors are beyond compare. The other way God's works are described here are by their enduring quality. His works are permanent. 
You see that all through this psalm. Verse 3, his righteousness endures forever. Verse 5, he remembers his covenant forever. Verses 7 and 8, all his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever. Verse 9, he has commanded his covenant forever. The enduring quality of God's works is why the songwriter, which is what these psalms are, can end the song with his praise endures forever. God's works are eternal. They don't fade in their effectiveness or in their power to accomplish what they are set out to accomplish. If you are a Christian, this description ought to comfort you tremendously. It ought to give an amazing sense of assurance that God's works last forever. What God has done, what God has worked, is eternal in life years. When God accomplishes something, it always has a forever quality about it. It is enduring. It is unalterable. Now just think of that in terms of your salvation. God's work in your life. He has worked to save you. He has worked to rescue you. And you can rest assured that his works are established and upheld forever. Who are we to say we can undo God's works? We don't only see this here, but it's affirmed in the whole Bible. John 6.39, of of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. John 10.28, my sheep will never perish. Romans 8.38 and 39, nothing will separate you. And he has a whole list there, and he ends that with nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Or Philippians 1.6 actually puts it in terms of that word work. God started his work in you, and he will finish that work. I am sure of this, it says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God's works in salvation are from everlasting to everlasting. We might say that God's workmanship has a lifetime guarantee. If that were a product that we bought, that kind of guarantee is as good as it can get, right? Or a warranty. When you get a lifetime warranty, there is no better kind of warranty, right? God's workmanship, though, is even better than that. It has a lifetime and more warranty. You can't say that about any other kind of product. The works of God are enduring. They will not fade with time. They are great. They're full of splendor and majesty. Praise the Lord. Great are the works of the Lord. Well, if that's how God's works are described, then how are they displayed? How does God show off his works? How are they displayed in that gallery? Has he, has he collected them into a gallery where we can look at them and, and marvel at them and remember them? Well, look at verses 4 to 6. And here you have some of God's activities listed. What has he done? Verse 4, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. He's not only done the works, but somehow he causes them to be remembered. Verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. In verse 6, he has shown, he has displayed, we could use that word there, his, to his people the power of his works. And so all of those things can be summarized with the word revelation. Revelation. Revealing. Just think about verse 4. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. How has he made them be, to be remembered? Well, there in the Old Testament, one of the ways he causes his works to be remembered is by establishing feasts. 
and, and different kinds of commemorations like that. Those served to help God's works to be remembered from generation to generation. Just think about the Passover meal or Feast of Unleavened Bread, any of those. They were there to help God's works be remembered from generation to generation as parents would talk to their children about what God has done, about what those things meant, those different festivals, what they pointed back to, how God worked to do marvelous things. So then we ask, how have God's works then been made known to us? Well, the answer there is in verse 5. He provides food to those who fear him. Is one way. In this psalm, he's thinking back to, you remember the story about the Israelites there grumbling in the desert, and what did God do? He, he said, we're, they said, we're hungry and we're thirsty, and then God provides this manna in the desert that comes down from the skies. And that was a foreshadow of God providing his son, who you remember in John reveals himself as the bread of life. And now God has provided his word, the Bible, to, to feed us and to nourish us. Man shall not live by bread alone, is just one of many illustrations, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other places, uh, God's word is compared to milk, which we long for. So one of, God, one of his works is revelation, the way he makes himself known. The second way his works are revealed stands out here. I say that because it looks like Psalm 111 is structured so that everything sort of funnels into verse 9 on both ends. In, in poetry, when you look at poems, it's not the same as paragraphs or sentences where, where meaning is found and how the different clauses relate to each other. When you're looking at a poem, which is what this is, or a song, you find the meaning in the way that the lines are structured, how they work together, the, the, the different parallelism and those sort of things. So we're going into sort of grade 10 English here. But not counting the line at the beginning and the line at the end that both talk about praise, the only verse that has three lines is verse 9. All the other ones have two lines. So, so it's different than the other verses in the psalm when you don't take the, the, the verse 1 and verse 10, which tells me that the writer is trying to emphasize something here. And the line that stands out, the line that just doesn't seem to fit the natural rhythm of this poem, just trust me on this, is the first line of verse 9. And that line defines the work of the Lord that the writer wants to emphasize. What has the Lord done? What is the work that he has accomplished? The greatest work that he has accomplished, the work that everything in history before this and after this points toward, what is the primary, his primary achievement? It is the work of redemption. He sent redemption to his people. He has worked redemption to his people. The word redemption there is, 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 was a word picture in that day that was borrowed from the marketplace of that day, the, the ancient day Wall Street or stock market. It meant, it, it meant redeeming, meant to buy something from the place of trade, and the idea was that it would never return. And one example of a purchase in Bible times would be the purchase of a slave. So when it says that God has sent redemption to his people, it would have reminded the people who sang this psalm later on of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. So that's likely the event or the work of God that this psalmist is thinking back to. 
He sent redemption to his people. How did he do it back then? Who was the redeemer person back then? Well, he sent it in the person of Moses, who is called his deliverer in one place. He sent redemption even, actually, through Pharaoh, of whom God said, I will be honored through Pharaoh. He sent redemption through the Red Sea, not only people, but even through an event, when the Red Sea parted. Remember Moses' words to the people in Exodus verse 14, verse 13, before that parting of the sea would happen, he says, Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Exodus 14, verse 13. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. You only, he says in the very next verse, have to be silent. You only have to be silent. Just stand by and watch. In other words, God will work while they are, were supposed to just watch and to see what God would do. While the redemption that God worked was the purchase of his people. The redemption of his people who were in bondage as slaves in Egypt. A people that he redeemed for himself. But this idea of redemption also reminds us not only of redemption which God sent in the past. It's pointing back to redemption past, but that is a, again a signpost with an arrow that points ahead to the present redemption that he makes available, that he made available. The New Testament talks about another group of slaves, doesn't it? It talks about another group of people who are slaves not to Egypt now, but slaves to sin. It talks about another group of people who are in need of rescue from that enslavement. A group of people who are in dire need of someone to pay the ransom price to redeem them from that slavery. It talks about a group of people who it describes as helpless talks about a group of people that included you and me and are described as blind, described as dead in our sins, enslaved in our sins, without hope. But, and now I'm reading right from Romans 5, verse 6, while we were still weak, or while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God's just wrath for sin. He makes a way of salvation, of rescue from that. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life by the perfect life of Christ as we put our faith in him, the one who died on the cross instead of us. We are redeemed from slavery by that act. God, in his mercy, sent a redeemer to slaves. And not only did he send a redeemer, he sent an actual and complete redemption. The redeemer is his son, the purchase price was the blood of his son, and the marketplace was the cross. It was at the cross that God sent redemption to his people 
And as people repent of their sins, and as they trust then completely on Christ's work on that cross, they move from being slaves of sin to, as Romans calls it, slaves of righteousness. Willing, joyful slaves of Christ Jesus the Lord. This is cause for praise. This is what is cause for our singing. This is cause, number one, to give thanks to, or verse one, to give thanks to the Lord with your whole heart. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was right when he wrote, Redemption is a fit theme for the heartiest music. Fanny Crosby did exactly that when she thought about redemption. She wrote a song called Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It. And one of the verses for that song goes like this. I, I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of him all the day long. I sing, for I cannot be silent. He, his love is the theme of my song. How about you? When you think about your Redeemer, when you think about God's work of redemption, do you sing because you cannot be silent? Does his redemption cause you to burst out in praise? That leads right into our response to God's works. Now that we know what God's work is, what ought we to do about it? Well, there are three answers that our text, I think, challenges us with here. This is what the psalm writer is doing, but it comes to us as a bit of a challenge. The first is in verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. The response for us who delight in God's work is to give ourselves to know his works and to study them. And the people who ought to be studying them are those who delight in God's works. And the ones who delight in God's works are those to whom God's works apply, namely the redeemed, the the congregation, the company of the upright. This is saying that this group of people who delight in God's works, the ones that have been the recipients of God's works, will or should have an insatiable desire to know more. They're going to yearn to inquire into into the depths and the profundities of God's labors for them. They will want to bend their minds to understand God and his works. We often give our minds to such needless things and such temporal things. The least we could do is to spend a good amount of time bending our minds to understanding God's works. These things that last forever. These things that he has done for us that, that, that give us a guarantee of our eternal life and our eternal reward. So, does that describe you? Do you study God's works? Are you, are you an inquiring mind that wants to know more about how God has worked to save you? This is something to which we ought to give our study, our time, and our effort. God and his works are worthy of the best of your time and the best of your energy. When is that time during the day when you have the most energy? Don't, don't give God just a back end. The time when you're tired and you're yawning and you're ready to fall asleep and, oh, I'll just open God's word. And, well, I mean, that's something, which is good. But give God the best of your time. Whether it's in the morning, whether it's the evening, whatever it is, when are you most alert? Spend time studying God's works. 
Don't give your best to lesser things. You'll never totally comprehend all that God has done for you and to you. And, but, you but if you truly delight in what God has labored to do for you, you should keep pondering and thinking and meditating on and studying his works. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. He hasn't done all these things just for you to go on and think about other things and sort of go, oh, I, I was saved, now I can go on to, to bigger and better things. No. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered, so remember them. Study them. You have a wonderful tool for this. God has given it to you. He's given you a Bible. It's been kindly presented to us by God to study his works. Give yourself to that study. A second response to God's works is fear or reverence. Down in verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is the kind of model you see often in the, in, in the wisdom section in the Bible, which Psalms is part of. So in Job, in Psalms, in Proverbs, in Ecclesiastes, they all include this saying. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we study God's works, it should cause us to revere God, to see him actually as our Lord, which means he is our leader, which means he is the one that has authority over us. He is the one to whom we bow in humble submission and and anybody that's an authority, there is a sense of fear, isn't there? That, that we want to please that person, or they can do something nasty to us, right? There is a healthy sort of fear that we have to have for God and his abilities and what he is able to do and the fact that he is our Lord and that we are his subjects. When we understand that God has worked to redeem us and when we understand that he has actually accomplished that redemption, through the atoning sacrifice of his son, then we are going to have a healthy fear and reverence for, of our holy God. We should always keep in mind who God is, and especially in comparison to who we are. We need to have a healthy fear and respect toward the only one that can save us from destruction and eternal judgment. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's that's where you start being wise. Once you have a healthy fear of the Lord, that's when you get on the road to starting to get to know him more and to be wise in how to live. Well, we've only just talked about God's works, God's labors. What, what about us? When you think about this, it's, it, it's kind of counterintuitive to us humans, isn't it? We always drift towards thinking that we need to do something in order to get something. And in a sense, that's true. You reap what you sow, all those sort of things. But Christianity is utterly unlike all other religions precisely because it is God who does all the work in order to get us into his kingdom. All other religions require some sort of merit-earning work in order for its adherence to reach the ultimate goal, whatever that goal is named, whether it's uh, paradise or, or enlightenment or nirvana or the celestial kingdom, whatever it is, they all need to do something in order to get there. There's a, it's a works kind of salvation. Christianity is unique in that God did the work. God did the labor to get you there. He has accomplished, that's a work word, he has accomplished the plan of redemption on our behalf. He did what we could not do. He works what we could not work. If you still believe that you need to do good deeds to get to heaven, or you think 
that you are a good person, you know, you, you, you've got the way scale out, that you do more good things than, than bad things. If you think that way, then this psalm is for you. You can, let's, we can put it this way, what's the opposite of work is rest. Well, you can rest in knowing that God's works are, are, are totally sufficient for you to get to heaven. If it was dependent on your works, you would, in fact, never make it. Because even the best things that you do, when it comes down to it, are tainted with wrong motivations. Self-interest. Those sorts of things. I always think you need to get something back when you do something. Or whatever it is. God requires absolute perfection. And, and the only one that met that requirement is the Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible actually says that, that our works are like filthy rags his sight. God requires absolute perfection. And the only one that met that requirement is his son, Jesus Christ, who was perfect man, yet was without sin. The way that you can get to heaven is precisely not through your own works, but through God's work of saving his people, through Christ's work on the cross for you. Not our work, but Christ's work God's work on your behalf. That's what we have to put our trust in. That's the only place where we can lay our trust. Bible says, for it is by grace, we sung a lot about that this morning, for it's by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Listen, not as a result of works. Expressly says that right there, doesn't it? It's not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If it was our work that we did it, we would have something to brag about. Look what I did in order to get God's favor. But it says here, it's not as a result of works that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So just notice the sequence there. You become a Christian, not by boasting about your own good works, saying, God, look what I've done, but by boasting about what God has done on your behalf, what Christ has done on the cross. Great are the works, not of, you can insert your name, but great are the works of the Lord. He sent redemption to his people. He sent his son as our redeemer, as our savior. It is his work that is finally decisive in your salvation. Hear that again. It is his work, not your own, that is finally decisive in your salvation, not your own. And the irony of this concept of work is that once God has done the work of saving us through Christ, and we respond then in faith, when we come out of the other side of that, that's the sequence, we are created by God for good works. That's what Ephesians 8, 2, 8-10 to 10 says. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But there's no reason for us to boast about getting saved because we are his workmanship. But once we become believers, we do good works. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what comes out on the other side as an expression and as a confirmation, actually, of what God has done for us. So if we're not doing, if we, if we say we're saved and we're not doing good, work, good works, then questions arise. Were we really saved? And we'll look at how all that plays out in the life of the church next week, Lord willing. Well, just one application here for Christians and for us that are part of the body of Christ. Once we understand God's works, we... we we should respond, as I've been saying right throughout here, in praise and in worship. We of all people ought to be singing about God's works. 
We ought to be the kind of people that boast much. The kind of people that boast much about God. He has provided his word and his grace and in his compassion and his mercy he has granted us redemption. He has given us the gift of his son. And so when we gather and when we assemble, we ought to be praising God with our whole hearts. Let's be that kind of congregation. Let's be that kind of people that recognize that God has done great and lofty things for us. Let's be the kind of people who constantly redirect praise toward God for sending his redemption to his people. Great are the works of the Lord. Holy and awesome is his name. Our Father, we affirm again, coming out of our time in your word, that great are the works of the Lord. Outstanding, magnificent, splendid, superb, excellent. There there are no words, really, that can overstate the splendor and majesty of your labors. Yes, in creation, but most amazingly, in your redemption. We... Our Father, have come to understand that you give us in superabundance what we do not deserve. We, all we have done is broken your laws. We have disobeyed your commandments. We have gone our own way. We have preferred lesser things over your glory. Yet, you have reached out to us in love by sending your Son as our Redeemer. And that deserves nothing but our highest adoration and our highest praise and our highest worship and also our our deepest contemplations. You have caused your works to be remembered. And so we want to give ourselves to that task. Help us to ponder and to study and to reflect and to remember all that you have labored to do for us. Help us not to forget. We are such a forgetting people. Help us to remember, to study, to ponder all of who you are, all of what you have done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go, I leave you this blessing from God's word to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.